glasses off. Last time on The Spectator, we told you about Bobby Kennedy's trip to Joliet to personally search for Molly Zelko in conjunction with the McClellan Committee after a jailhouse confession to her murder was given. Providing this confession was Mafia Hood Jimmy the Green Hornet Reenie, who was serving time for outfit-related attacks on rival gambling establishments and unfriendly newspapers around the time of Molly's disappearance. Just After a bizarre search ensued, Rini recanted his confession, claiming to have made up the entire story to get a rise out of Kennedy. We later heard directly from Rini himself in a series of interviews recorded shortly before his death, bragging in detail about his lifelong, shameless criminal exploits. However, he clearly tensed up when discussing his connection to the Molly Zelko case. From the Joliet Area Historical Museum and Joliet Public Library, this is The Spectator. The chances are your chances are I told the story to Lonnie. One time she came in at night and she was crying and all upset. And uh, she said they were following her and she was frightened. And I don't know how old I was, but she said they were following her. And I ran to the front window in the living room and knelt on the couch and looked out. And there was this car, big car, black, going by our house real slow. And my mother crying and saying, Molly, Molly, I've got kids. You can't come here, you know. And... um, That's one thing, as a child, what really stands out in my mind. That was Molly Zelko's niece, Arlene. For the first half of this podcast, we've introduced the players and asked the question, who was Molly Zelko from a professional standpoint? Now, it's time to set the stage and discuss what we know about the personal Molly Zelko, and just as importantly, what we know about the days, hours, and even minutes leading up to Molly's disappearance on September 25th, 1957. Arlene and her cousin Jim agreed to be interviewed for this podcast. As Molly never had children of her own, they are among the few people remaining who can remember her from the uniquely personal perspective of her family. The memories range from heartwarming to harrowing. Listen as Jim and Arlene discuss their warmer recollections of Aunt Molly. She was, I said, way ahead of her time. Here's my aunt, 60 years ago in the 30s and 40s, the only woman doing her thing. I mean... She just, man, she got after she wasn't afraid. She was a tough woman, a wonderful woman, wanted what was right, wanted justice. But, um, yeah, I, I, so I vaguely remember these stories, but um, I didn't know I was ever going to have to recall them. <laughs> <laughs> I know Aunt Molly would come over to visit us at Christmas time. And I remember her coming in, and she'd have her mink coat on, and she'd have her big diamond ring. And come in and hug everybody and bring presents. And in a very short time, got to be somewhere else. And yes. off she'd go. To, to yeah. go around. Yeah. Yeah. She made the right Married to the job, yeah. so to speak. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah, it, yeah if anybody was, she was. Yeah. yeah. She just... 24-7. Yeah. When I was in eighth grade, she took us to New York, paid for the whole trip, flew us to New York. I'd never been on a plane before. Probably hadn't even been out of Joliet. But anyway... <laughs> We flew to New York, and she rented, um, we had a chauffeur and a limo taking us all over New York. 
um, to the Stark Club. Uh, we ate there, and I remember one place was the Automat that just came out where you put money in a machine to get the sandwiches <laughs> out. It was called the Automat. I remember that. Uh, we went to, of course, the Statue of Liberty, and uh, it, it was quite a trip. Quite, a, We had a wonderful time, yeah. To get an even better glimpse of Molly Zelko's personal life, it helps to see a picture of the city of Joliet in 1957. Lynn Lichtenauer, who we heard from earlier telling us about the Mafia's presence in Joliet as an open secret, was fresh out of high school around the time of Molly's disappearance. She paints an incredible picture of life in Joliet during the era, which closely corresponds to the popular imagination of American life in the 1950s. Downtown Joliet was amazing. That was the era of the nightclub. People would get dressed up on a Saturday night um, and go out. The Rialto Square Theater is where we dated and went to the movies, but there was the Mode, there was the Orpheum, there was the Princess, there was Little Jack's. Oh, Little Jack was a great nightclub. And of course, we would go, we would do the drag. We'd get in our car, you know, with our date or not, and then just go the drag, go up to the Ace Drive-In or Otto's on Plainfield Road. And um, it was active. They had the Joliet Conservatory of Music up, up above Kipp's uh, Jewelry Store. There was Lewis Brothers Shoe Store where you went in and you put your feet in the x-ray machine. And they, you know. I don't know how many of us suffered from, from what is it, a little radiation there. But it would show, you know, we put the, the shoes on and then we would put our feet, you know. <laughs> we loved doing that. We thought that was a big deal. Anyway, so it was exciting. It was fun. I mean, there was lots to do, places to go, people to see, always. The, the Herald News captured some of that and the Spectator captured, uh, captured some of that. Lots of activity. Lots of, it was vibrant. How I would. Uh, characterize it. Now that you're asking me to remember these things, they, in the recesses of my mind, I can bring it forward because it was it was great. I, I loved it. Yep. And then I went to work here, and as I said, I, in Chicago for a while, but came back to Joliet and the Herald News, then the Spectator. Molly was one of six children, born and raised in Joliet. Her father, Frank, emigrated to the United States from Slovenia at that time part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Molly was born in 1910 and delivered by a midwife at the Zelko family home on Summit Street. Though certainly the glamorous city Lynn describes in the 1950s, Joliet did face economic disparity. Going back to the 1880s, the city claimed a large population of Slovenian immigrants who worked in the steel mills and surrounding industrial factories in the neighborhood north of downtown known as Slovenian Row. As the name implies, its residents lived in poverty and worked under grueling conditions. While circumstances improved over the years, the mills, factories, and other industries were still the primary employers in the city in the 1950s, as Joliet filed the curve of the national trend of a rising middle class. For Lynn, Jim, and Arlene, and millions of other baby boomers, this was simply childhood. Sixty years later, Arlene and Jim's childhood memories of Molly are understandably vague but both clearly remember the moment they heard that Molly disappeared. Arlene was away at college in Minnesota while Jim was just a grade schooler. I just remember my mom calling me, and she said, Arlene, Aunt Molly disappeared, and um, don't come home, you know, from school. Stay up there. Do not come home. So I wasn't really involved in the post-kidnapping of her because I was away. 
But my mother would share some things with me. Not a lot. She was frightened. So. What was like your reaction when you got that phone call? Do you remember what? Just your well, immediate. I was shocked. But I had grown up with <clears throat> threats for her. You know, she was getting threats. I had seen things drive, you know, cars past our house, big limos, just like the movies, and um, you know, following her to our house. Well, I remember the day, I remember very clearly, my mom and dad talking. Dad got a phone call that this had happened, and I remember telling my mom, I said, Mom, I'll get my BB gun, and we'll get in the car, and we'll go looking for her in the country. <laughs> well, needless to say, she didn't take me up on that, but that was an 11-year-old's reaction to uh, perhaps a violent crime, and... Uh, so it's like, we got to do something. We got to go looking for her. I'll get my BB gun. Let's go looking for her. Find Aunt Molly in the ditch somewhere or wherever. But, you know. But, you know, I was 11. Parents generally don't share a lot. I mean, when they're talking and you're in the room, they're probably not saying the things that they're really thinking or want to say. Mm -hmm. And then... When you're not in the room, you overhear bits and pieces and just a lot of concern, like what's going to happen now? Mm -hmm. Not, are we going to find her? What are we going to do? Police are taking care of that. What is going to happen now? I make a date for golf and you can bet your life it rains. I try to give a party. And the guy upstairs complains I guess I'll go through life Just catching colds and missing trains Everything happens to me So what did happen the day of Molly's disappearance? Let's bring back Lonnie Kane to walk us through Molly's last day, which as the day the spectator was put to bed before its release the following morning, would have been one of her busiest days of the week. Actually, uh, there's a lot more detail about that than you would expect. And the reason that uh, Whiteside and I were able to get that is because we were able to track down people that worked for the spectator, not only worked for the spectator, but were the last people to see her leave. Uh, people that worked at the paper, uh, it was a Wednesday night, um, which is when they put the paper to bed. Um, uh, good friends had said that uh, she kind of seemed depressed the week before. But that day, she had been um, proofing copy on and off all day, which, you know, like I said before, she she liked really tight control over everything. Um, back in uh, July of that year, she had put in a private phone line in her office. Uh, and on this particular day, uh, employees said that she had spent a lot of time on the phone making phone calls in her office, door closed. In fact, uh, one person actually mentioned that, hey, you've been on the phone a lot. Uh, and her comment was, yes, I've just finished fighting a case. And it, which might have something to do with this long, these long distance phone calls she was making afterwards. Um, during the day, she had talked to her favorite city councilman, uh, Bill Wilson. Uh, we talked to him and he said it was just a normal conversation, nothing unusual, at least that's what he told us. We heard about Councilman Bill Wilson in our first episode. He was elected to the Joliet City Council shortly before Molly's disappearance and backed by The Spectator as an anti-gambling candidate in a contentious election. In fact, just a month prior to her disappearance, Councilman Wilson was a swing vote in an ordinance which banned coin-operated devices in Joliet beginning in 1958, 
after Molly's disappearance. She had a friend who had called her to invite her to dinner. And Molly's response was, I just have too much to do, which is understandable because when you're putting the paper to bed, it's it's very busy. Uh, although you'd think her friend would know on a Wednesday night not to do that. But she, she turned her down. The uh, last family member to talk to her was her brother, Frank. And she had told him, uh, and this was that day, that she was going to stop a gentleman by the name of Gilbert Canader from being sheriff. So that might have been part of this story that she was working on. Again, uh, anti-gambling, anti-political mob connections. And the Canader name kind of fits into that. The state's attorney at the time was Frank Masters, and she had called him around 5.30, 6 o'clock. And Masters told us that, again, it was just a general conversation. So, but I'm not too sure why she's calling Masters and her friend and it's, it's and her brother saying that uh, she had something significant going on. We haven't talked about Frank Masters, the Will County State's Attorney in 1957, 20 years after Bill McCabe held the post. Masters appears to have been aligned politically with Molly and McCabe. It was learned after Molly's disappearance, he actually held three shares of stock in The Spectator and was the only other person outside of Molly and Bill McCabe, each of whom held equal shares, to hold stock in the newspaper. About 9.30 that night, her phone was ringing, but she was ignoring it. And one of the employees said, uh, uh, your phone, uh, you're going to answer that? And her response was, and this is a paraphrasing, was, I'm not deaf, I know who it is, and I don't want to talk to him. So there was something going on that particular day. Uh, later that evening, uh, her good friend, uh, Mary Jane Polers, who was uh, active in the community for a long time, talked to her on the phone. Uh, and this would be an hour, about an hour before she actually left. And she was inviting Molly, wanted to invite Molly at some point in time to come over and see movies because she and her husband had just got back from a European vacation and for dinner. And she said, she told us in 78, Molly, you know, Molly wasn't upset, but she said, I can't talk now. I have to get back to work, which again, 1030, they're wrapping up the paper. I, I you know, I would think that that's probably true and not necessarily suspicious in any way. So, so she leaves work at the normal time. Paper's done, she leaves work roughly around 11.30. The gentleman we talked to who worked there said she was in good spirits, good spirits all day. But but this particular gentleman also was the man who used to follow her home. You know, it, it, was, it was kind of a practice. Uh, follow her home, make sure she gets in the apartment uh, okay. But he said that she kind of took off and didn't say anything about following her home. She just kind of took off. In fact, he, he I think he used the word sped off. and. He's, it gave him the impression that she was in a hurry and that she was going out to maybe meet someone. Uh, but again, maybe it was to make this phone call. I don't know. It likely wasn't too alarming to anyone at The Spectator that Molly left alone that evening. And while the large amount of interactions throughout her final day may also seem suspicious, it probably also wasn't considered out of the ordinary for such a well-connected person. Molly's apartment, situated above her brother's home on Buell Avenue, was a very short drive from The Spectator offices on Cass and Joliet Streets probably not even a 10-minute walk. This does imply, however, that if Molly was abducted, it was perpetrated by someone who was familiar with her routine or was with her when she disappeared. That's where the discussion with employees stops in terms of her leaving and her day. But then you pick it up with the police reports where people, the neighbors told police that they heard screams around 11.30, 11.35, sometime between 11.30 and midnight. Um, but no one called police uh, because they said it was pretty common for kids in the area to be loud and noisy and they just blew it off. Um, 
even though their description of the scream sounded kind of scary. But um, and but it was the next day that Molly did not uh, show up to work. One of the employees, it was a job of uh, one of the employees, an employee to call Molly the next day and make sure she was awake. She was called twice before 6 a.m. and there was no answer. And so they drove to her apartment, her house on Buell. They saw the car there and they also saw the shoes on the car, which is, they had been put there. So they made, uh, eventually uh, they called, uh, they called her sister, they called uh, the family and um, they got into her apartment and it was pretty obvious that she hadn't slept in her bed. So before too long, uh, the police were called and it just it kind of rolled from that point forward into uh, the police investigation. The uh, keys to her car was a black 55 Chrysler under the driver's mat, which she did all the time. I mean, this was 57. I guess you didn't worry about people stealing your car. And uh, then, of course, there were the shoes. Her keys to the spectator office were never found. They didn't really have any significant evidence of anything missing from Molly's office, other than she had told uh, family members that if anything ever happens to me, there's a, a packet of letters and photos that are tied in a pink ribbon in my office. I want you to get them out of there, take them. So I, I think that meant that they were extremely personal, but don't know what they were. The family member didn't know what they were, but when they went down there to get them, they were gone. They were never found. As in any disappearance of a high-profile person, the ensuing aftermath was predictably chaotic and frantic. Media from around the country descended on Joliet, running regular front-page articles on Molly's disappearance. Search parties were immediately formed, and areas throughout four counties were combed, with local law enforcement even employing the use of a helicopter, an advanced feat at the time. However, given the nature of Molly's work with the Spectator and her long list of enemies throughout the city, Speculation into whether everyone in the community was really interested in finding her ensued, even from the Joliet police chief himself, Joe Trisna. This was a story that went way beyond Joliet's borders at the time. Uh, all of the Chicago papers were here. Uh, it was national news. There, you know, these true crime magazines came in and did pieces. It was pretty intense. There were there were flyovers, uh, dogs uh, walking through woods. There was there were searches everywhere. And as I said, the sheriff at the time, uh, or the police chief at the time, I'm sorry, was Joe Trisna, who later became sheriff. And he was relatively new to the job and kind of surrounded by people that he had questions about, doubts, or out and out did not trust. And, and later it told us that they were connected uh, to the mob and were a direct pipeline with Curry. One of Molly's brothers, the quote he gave us in 78 was, and this is a quote, I never saw anything so disgusting in my life. Uh, he just said police were reluctant to follow leads. The uh, FBI, there were efforts to get the FBI involved. Uh, Bill McCabe wrote a letter to Hoover. The, uh, the family had thousands, had petitioned in the community with thousands of signatures, all pleading with Hoover to take over the case and get involved. He did not. He refused because there was no body, but still had uh, agents assigned. And uh, through a Freedom of Information uh, re request that we made, uh, we ended up getting uh, over 900 pages of reports, FBI reports, most of it blacked out. 
um, which is strange because this was like, you know, 20 some years after she disappeared and they're still blacked out. So the FBI was kind of involved, but not in charge. So Trisna was driving it. The uh, captain at the time, a guy by the name of John Dillon, said everything possible had been, has been done. And he said that in a story uh, in the newspapers a year later. He said at that point in time, there were thousands of pages of police reports, which we discovered the most had been tossed or hidden or vanished. Trisna had just been named chief the year before. And he talks about the, the corruption at the time. He said that he was approached with obvious bribes. And he decided a month into the investigation to kind of start over, wipe the slate clean. And so he got permission from the city to hire uh, someone to do this, to go around with one of the police officers and take notes. And their mission was to go around and talk to all friends, all everybody, all sources. Uh, and she ended up uh, doing this, they did this. But then um, this particular woman with all these notes, she hadn't transcribed them yet, took a vacation to Las Vegas and never came back. The notes were gone, she was gone, bam. Which makes you wonder what's going on. And it's it's little things like this that make you come to the conclusion that yeah, it was the mob that took care of Molly. <laughs> and the, the officer at the time, that went, the, the sergeant that went around with her said, you know, I, I don't think we really got anything from any of these people that we didn't already have. So uh, he didn't say there was really nothing significant lost. So Trisner was never really convinced of that. But he said that, that was that was kind of the, the hammer that uh, bent the nail. It was like, uh, from that point forward, it was like everything seemed like a waste of time. Uh, he had people leaking information. Uh, he had a captain at the time that he wanted to get involved in the investigation, and that captain uh, absolutely refused. Uh, in fact, his, the, the quote that Trisna gave us is that that captain said, I wouldn't spend five minutes looking for that bitch. And he, but he said he spent a lot of time leaking information to Curry. He had uh, the mayor at the time wanted the police chief to set up the head to move the headquarters into the sheriff's office. And at that particular point in time, the common knowledge was the sheriff was connected to Curry also. So once again, that's a political gambling mob. Uh, it's it's intertwined. So the investigation. Early on, that that first year, kind of failed. There was a strong perception, even at the time, that the FBI was hesitant to enter the case. As Lonnie mentions, they never did so in an official capacity. However, the Bureau's internal documentation, even though heavily redacted, shows that they began working on the case almost immediately. An urgent memo is sent directly to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover the day Molly was reported missing, from Chicago Special Agent in Charge Richard Auerbach, notifying him of the disappearance. Auerbach told Hoover that the Chicago office was, quote, informally offering assistance to Joliet PD, particularly FBI lab facilities, and maintaining close liaison to determine if violation of federal law has occurred, end quote. Hoover, who we heard from earlier in the series, admonishing the connections between gambling and organized crime in his role as FBI director, replied the next day, stating firmly, quote, immediate inquiry should be conducted to determine if an abduction has occurred. If actual abduction occurred, conduct full investigation under 24-hour presumptive clause, end quote. Hoover closed the message, insisting he be kept advised. Unbeknownst to him that the FBI was covertly working on the case, a physically, and now emotionally, broken Bill McCabe did personally petition Director Hoover to officially enter the case. 
In a letter dated October 8, 1957, he implores, quote, It has now been 13 days since my associate and partner in the Spectator Publishing Company, Miss Amelia Zelko, disappeared. Due to the underlying gangster and criminal element in this county, I am fearful. It appears she has been kidnapped. We feel, with the greater facilities of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, a solution to her mysterious disappearance might be gained. I'm certain it was not a voluntary disappearance, for I've known Miss Zelko for so many years and have been closely associated with her in my newspaper's fight against crime and corruption. I sincerely hope that you can help in this case, and with the combined work of city, county, state, and federal authorities, we might be able to get to the bottom of this." End quote. In reply to McCabe's letter, Assistant FBI Director Alex Rosen, insisting that precautions be taken to keep the FBI's role in the case below the radar, advised Special Agent Auerbach, quote, Since there is a possibility that any letter bearing the director's signature would be published, it is recommended that you be instructed to contact Mr. McCabe, acknowledge his letter of October 8th, and advise McCabe that we are making inquiry into this matter to determine if a violation in the Bureau's jurisdiction exists, that we have maintained close liaison with the local authorities, and have placed a notice in the files of the Identification Division on Zelko. Despite the clarity of McCabe's plea, Auerbach, in a clear reference to McCabe's injuries from the 1948 attack, had determined he was, quote, old and ill and so did not fully understand FBI position, this due to his infirmary and apparent inability to comprehend, end quote. Auerbach's memo stated conclusively, quote, doubted that McCabe understood the present situation at all, end quote. Frustrated with the limitations of local law enforcement's efforts to locate Molly, her family also appealed directly to Director Hoover the following month. Apparently, they were not alone in their opinion that local authorities were not doing enough to investigate the disappearance, for their letter was accompanied by 5,000 signatures. Dear Mr. Hoover, they wrote, Approximately six weeks have elapsed since the mysterious disappearance of our sister, Miss Amelia Zelko, 413 Buell Avenue, Joliet, Illinois. We, the family, and many of her close friends and business associates are certain she did not leave deliberately. In our opinion, she has been kidnapped. At this time, we find ourselves in a helpless situation, as our combined efforts have failed to uncover any clue which would direct us to her, and the strain the family is forced to endure is tremendous. Although we have extreme confidence in our local authorities, who have worked faithfully on this case, we sincerely believe that the intervention of the Federal Bureau of Investigation would be extremely beneficial. With the cooperation of her many friends and acquaintances, we have circulated petitions requesting your aid. Accompanying this letter are approximately 5,000 signatures. As the investigation appears to be at a standstill at the present time, we are convinced that some help from the FBI is desperately needed. If the policy for your department does not warrant intervention in this type of case, could you please suggest or recommend any procedure on our part that might help find our sister? Any suggestions or recommendations shall be gratefully received. To you, Mr. Hoover, we extend our thanks for the courtesy of giving this appeal your personal attention. Yours very truly, the Zelko family. Yeah, I wish I could remember more. You know, it's been a long time for me, 60 years. And yeah. uh, I'm old now, too, and I forget a lot of things. And Yeah, I wish I could remember more, you know. Just that I can picture her eating with us. And I can... Hear her voice. I can hear her voice. I can too. Yeah, she had like that little sitting husky. Sitting there, and I can yeah. see her pounding on that piano and singing, yeah. and I see her playing with my brothers. I know what she was, how she was to me, very kind. And um, 
Yeah. She's a, a wonderful person. She was our aunt. Yeah. Now she takes on a much different perspective because of what's happened to her. But at the time, hey, that's Aunt Molly. She comes over here. She's got a mink coat on. She's got a big diamond ring. And she's a little extravagant. And you don't see her very often. <laughs> she wasn't, to us at that time, she wasn't some crusader at Spectator. She was our aunt. Mm-hmm. Next time on The Spectator. As public interest in Molly waned, her story nearly faded into history, until a chance evening of cocktails between two new neighbors returned her to the front page in 1978. We'll explore the traditional and supernatural lengths that Joliet Herald News reporters John Whiteside and Lonnie Kane went to to try to find Molly. I'll never forget you I'll never forget you. The Spectator is a project of the Joliet Area Historical Museum and Joliet Public Library. The podcast was produced by me, Greg Pierbolt, along with Joey Lieberman. Interviews were recorded by Keith Folk, head of the Joliet Public Library's digital media studio. Thanks to all our interviewees, Lonnie Kane, Lynn Lichtenauer, Dennis Henrietta, Arlene Rivers, and Jim Zelko. Thanks to Megan Millen, director of the Joliet Public Library, and a very special thank you to reporter John Conroy for providing the FBI documentation referenced in this episode. Goodbye. But that was long ago. Now you've forgotten, I know. Kiss me as you go Goodbye Goodbye Goodbye